High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, all you babysitters out there and all your parents who are confident enough to leave your kid behind with a teenager. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where me and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the pool party's at my place this evening. But not for you. Because it's a babysitting Monday, and you have to earn your keep, you gotta pay those bills. Well, at least think about paying those bills, right? Because you want to afford that first car, you want to start to save up for college. Hey, I hope you had a fun weekend. I sincerely do. Because it's Monday, and it's time to get to work. And today we're getting to work with a fun movie, a horror movie, a formative horror film, a thriller, if you will. And it's called When a Stranger Calls. And our guest today is, of course, an old standby, probably our most tenured guest, Mike Manzi. He's here. But before any of that, I have to ask you the basic questions. First, have you hit that subscribe button on wherever you're listening right now, whether it be Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts? If you have, great. If you haven't, please hit that button. And if you haven't given us a review, please give us a five-star rating. Please write us a review. These kind of things help. They help the podcast. They help spread the love and joy of High School Slumber Party. Because who doesn't want to spend their summers babysitting and earning some money? And that's what they do. That's what the slumberers do on this podcast. And I thank you so much every week for listening. And remember, guys, you can also listen on cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me, the flagship for all Cage Club programming, including all Mike Manzi shows, all my shows, including this one, of course, but also, P.S., I Still Love Hoffman, our Phil Seymour Hoffman podcast, Foodie Films, Kyle Reinfried's podcast, Too Fast, Too Forever, Hanks for the Memories, a bunch of other stuff. Trust me, all the pop culture podcasts you could ever want and need 
are there at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Just a quick question while I'm getting ready to hang out by my pool and sending you off on your babysitting assignment like I'm your babysitter's I was going to say pimp, but that sounds very wrong. I almost did that a couple weeks ago, I think. No, but I'm just your babysitting coordinator. But a couple things I want to ask you. Did you listen to Friday's episode on Rad? It was so awesome. It was one of my favorite episodes. It seems like you guys on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, have been interacting with our Rad posts so much. I guess this movie is really, really popular. Or maybe it's one of those movies that it's like, oh, I remember that one. I feel like it has more of that quality. Well, again, want to thank Joey Lundowski for guesting on that episode because it was great. Definitely, definitely check that out in the archives at cageclub.me. But we got a babysitting assignment to get to, right? I don't want to keep you for too long. I don't want you to think that you are, you know, going to be invited to my pool party right now. Plus, I'm making my drink of the week. What's my drink of the week? Let's see. Let me check with my personal pool bartender. It is a margarita. Simple, easy, a classic. Love it. Love it. I think I'm going to have a guava margarita. Let's make that guava. Cool? Cool. Great. So I'm going to grab my towel, and you're going to have to grab your babysitting bag or whatever you need to do babysitting. So pack your backpack. Tell your mother you're in a babysitting assignment because you're about to get your babysit on while I get my pool party on. I think I got a better rhyme scheme for this last week. God, I gotta listen. Anyway, let's take it away with When a Stranger Calls. See you after your assignment. Okay, my sorry. No, 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 I was getting my notes. Oh, I'm, my sorry, notes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> sorry. Yes, you're gonna open the show for me from now. No, Brian, welcome, <laughs> slumberers, to the iconic high school slumber party. No. Ooh, I like that. I should, I should do that more often. You yeah, man. Double up on the iconic thing. Yeah, own it, own it. <laughs> well, Mike, again, pleasure to always have you on in your recurring rotating role here on high school slumber party i feel like i can't do a series without your input a little bit and we are in our babysitting summer series which is nice a nice little summer job for the slumberers out there earn their keep a little bit excellent you know, maybe save up for college who knows what's going to happen in a couple of years but <laughs> and you've helped me out with some horror before so yeah 
Today's film is When a Stranger Calls from 1979. Not the most high school film, but a formative one, and I think one that'll let us get into a couple interesting topics. But why don't you do your old-fashioned high school slumber party introduction, and we'll get underway. Sure, sure, sure. So, Mike Manzi, RHS, class of 97. That's right, you heard me right, class of 97. (laughs) Go Maroons! Go Maroons. And, you know, before we talk about the movie, I want to ask uh-huh. this question. Did you have a babysitter growing up? So, What was your experience growing up with babysitting at all? Okay, so I listened to the Adventures in Babysitting episode, so I came prepared. I knew you were going to ask me. And Ooh. so I have like two answers to this. So one, <laughs> my dad traveled a lot and my mom went with him often. It was the early to mid 80s. One of my earliest memories is my parents coming home and this must have just been like a dinner night. They came home, it was a local teenage girl watching us and the kitchen was practically flooded with water balloons. Uh, Me, my brother and my sister were all two years apart. (laughs) We sort of just took over. We took, (laughs) I don't even know exactly what happened. I just have like these faint memories of my parents walking in and everybody laughing hysterically. And it was sort of one of those uh, like magic moments, I guess you could say. That's a very early memory. I must've been like, Oh good. I'm I'm happy no one got, Oh wow. I'm happy no one got angry at each other. So no, my mom tells that story all the time or as she used to all the time in, in uh, good fun. Okay, good. So it was more like ending to like a family ties episode. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Very sitcom esque. <laughs> very sitcom esque. That's yeah. great. That's great. <laughs> but for the times when like my parents did travel, we had Mrs. Curtin, who came from like a what I found out later, I thought she was a family friend. Nope. She was just a stranger from a call service that my parents tried out once and ended up liking and so she oh. she would come back often whenever they go away. I mean, I distinctly remember her being there a lot like one or two particular years she cooked with way too much salt (laughs) and before bed i'd always watch game shows with her like wheel of fortune i remember watching the local lottery and she introduced me to uncle floyd who is a local jersey legend if you know the name Uh, so that is the other sort of babysitting memory i had i think that stopped when i was like around seven because then i had like a nine-year-old sister and a 11-year-old brother, right? So we could all sort of watch ourselves at that point for a night or something. But yeah, that's about that those are pretty much the big ones. Mrs. Curtin, I love it. It just paints such a vivid image. <laughs> I'm picturing a Mrs. Doubtfire type. Yeah. I know that's not really. I was But not say, British, not like. British, but like, you know, <laughs> just sort of I guess what you would consider older at the time, but yeah, like long white hair, just very matrony and yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool. That's I love that. That's old school. But that's see, an adult babysitter. So you've had teen babysitters and adult babysitters. I was talking to some of our slumberers who aren't from the good old US of A, and they were saying they found it so odd how Americans trusted teenagers with their kids, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and even the, the Babysitter's Club, which is a popular book series, popular movie, and now it's a Netflix series again, they're like in middle school and they're trusting them with, with their kids. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I remember my sister, who's two years older than me, babysat forever, like as far back as I can remember. You know, it was a real Lisa Simpson situation where like she would be in charge of me and my brother from time to time because <laughs> she was the responsible <laughs> one. But yeah, I mean, all throughout, you know, from probably from middle school up until through college, I could recall her babysitting for families and, you know, she would 
get in with a family for a while. You know what I'm saying? Like they'd go back to so every once in a while, she'd just find like a family and like watch those kids for like five years, you know, every once in a while or whatever. So uh, I think a lot of that as uh, parents like back in the day just came from their friends having teenagers who needed like extra cash. And since you knew the parents, mm-hmm. you figured their kids would be all right and their heads were screwed on straight and yeah, you know, I guess people were just more trustworthy back then. <laughs> well, this movie might scare some would-be babysitters, <laughs> perhaps into babysitting. I was going to say, I know you help out with some of uh, your nieces and nephews, because you've talked about it on the show here. So you've had babysitting experience on both ends then, technically, right? Uh, yeah, technically you could say that, but like I never, you know, charged to watch I watching sim, not siblings but watching family doesn't really feel so much like babysitting for some reason you know it's yes they're not my children but they're still my niece and nephew it's of course not, it's of not course. like the neighbor's kids right so I never <laughs> had to watch the neighbor's kids while she ran out to get like eggs or milk or whatever but yeah I've, I watched those kids for years and years you know one set of my one brother their kids are like off to college now and my sister's kids are all grown up too and they're growing up so yeah lots of lots of experience myself luckily no craziness <laughs> i was gonna say have you ever encountered a night <laughs> like we see in when a stranger calls i hope not but no it is something <laughs> that <laughs> it is something that is i think fascinating in media we see like two sides of the babysitting story well th- i'll say three sides of the babysitting story right yeah we see kind of like a playful (laughs) side of babysitting. We see a scary side of babysitting. And sometimes, again, not really in this film, but I think we'll cover maybe one or two films that have this as well. (laughs) We see an erotic side of babysitting sometimes depicted as well. So it is a weird world in media. Well, one could argue that there is like a fetish, fetish, fetishistic fetishistic (laughs) there's a fetishistic sort of bend to you know that crank collar which is heavily exploited in this film as just like i'm sure ever since the alexander graham bell was probably like damn it what did i do now all creeps are just gonna breathe heavy into phones (laughs) half the time you know so like that has always sort of been a thing i guess since telephone i guess less so now since landlines are gone i feel like this movie's taking that as its major cue and sort of running with it. And Absolutely. It is, it is certainly creepy. And it's something like, you know, you've jogged my mind a little bit with this. Now with cell phones, and the internet's a whole other thing, and we know that's scary and dark, and it has its issues, probably bigger issues than the phone for sure. But now with cell phones, if we don't know the number, we pretty much don't pick up and no one takes offense. With landlines, I remember, like, it rings, you pick it up. That's yeah. just what you do, you know? <laughs> All kinds of excuses from people in the house. I'm in the shower. I'm not home. This and that. Like, I can't talk. All that, you know, like, you pick it up. I'm not picking it up. And then other times, you're just like, who could possibly be calling me? And what <laughs> what in the world could this all be about? And, like, you really were anxious to, like, pick up that phone. So, yeah, it's a whole other world nowadays. I don't even think about it it doesn't even occur to me now with cell phones how just like it's just different i don't know no not at all like if you and i were recording and you went to the bathroom or something and i saw your cell phone ringing 
I'm not going to pick it up, you know? Like, I might tell you, hey, Mike, your phone's ringing. For some reason, like, the landline rules were so different. Again, a phone rang. It was next to you. No one else was there. You picked up that phone. So I saw, like, some modern reviews post. And again, we'll talk about maybe the remake and stuff like that. But I saw some modern reviewers posting and... Maybe they were like young people like, why does she keep picking up the phone? You know, that's just what you did. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, you know, it gets to a point, too, where you want to get to the bottom of the crank call or or whatever it is and anything like that. But yeah, you know, it's kind of weird. Like, this is the first time I've seen this movie, believe it or not. I've never Mm -hmm. seen the sequel or the update or any of that kind of stuff. I wondered if this was where the line is calling from inside the house originated. I'm not sure if that was like a thing before this or this is where that's from. And I'm watching it and I'm going like, man, like I don't like how it's dated with the phone and all this stuff. But now that I, like it's settled in me a little bit, I do like that about it. I think that's one of its sort of... Um, it's like part of its time capsule. Like that's one of its better attributes. I think that's why maybe it would work better back then. Or if you're going to redo it, do it as a period piece, as opposed to like trying to modify this for the modern age. You know, I feel like this movie's story, this story's time has come and gone. You know, let it be what it is, and then don't try and remake it again or anything. It's kind of why I chose this film for this series because it is actually very formative in the genre. In it might be more formative and pop culture than people think so you mentioned this is the first time you saw it first time i saw it as well but i had really heard about it when i was uh, researching scream when we covered scream because wes Mm. craven said that he was completely inspired and was paying homage to this film the first 20 minutes of this film in the first like 10 minutes or whatever of scream, you know, the drew Barrymore part and such. So that's the first time it came on my radar. But if you guys haven't heard of it, of course, every week I read the back of the DVD VHS is of course VHS, not really VHS era, but it was released on VHS. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You got, you got the 35 millimeter print over there. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. And a little handwritten note. What it's about. (laughs) Here's a VHS uh, summary. A terrified young babysitter, an incessantly ringing phone, and whispered threats set the stage for one of the most suspenseful chillers ever filmed. Carol Kane stars as the babysitter who is tormented by a series of ominous phone calls until a compulsive cop is brought on the scene to apprehend the psychotic killer. Seven years later, however, the nightmare begins again when the madman returns to mercilessly haunt Kane, now a wife and a mother. No longer a naive girl, though still terrified, but prepared, she moves boldly to thwart the maniac's attack in scenes that culminate in a nerve-shattering conclusion. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Not 100% what the film's about. I will talk about it. This film has like three distinct parts. Some parts I like yes. better than others. Mm-hmm. That's very strange about it, the structure of this movie. That caught me off guard. Yeah, but maybe some of the um, research I did will enlighten you on or enlighten everyone i should say on why this film is the way it is open my third eye (laughs) the director is a guy named fred walton and he actually shot a short film a year before this called the sitter and the sitter was basically the first 20 minutes of this okay and that was his short film i've never seen it supposedly it's good but it's it's again almost the exact same thing that happens here Then Halloween came out the same year The Sitter, you know, he made The Sitter, and he was like, wow, if I make this into a feature-length movie, 
maybe I can do something with this. Like he was really inspired by Halloween, obviously another film we covered on this podcast. So he wrote the full length story. And that's why we see, we get the 20 minutes. We kind of have a detective noir thing. And then we have the chase again at the end. He was kind of just putting things together to enhance this. Interesting. Enhance his short film. Yeah. Very interesting. And I wanted to talk about this with you as well. This is based on an actually like a quote unquote scary story, like a legend that people used to tell. I guess I guess you would call those like urban legends, right? And it was called The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to earlier when the collars coming from inside the house, right? Is that what did I just yes, did absolutely. I just jump the gun? <laughs> no, no, no. It was, it was exactly the next thing I was gonna say. That comes from just this whole short story. I shouldn't say short story because it was never really a written down thing, more or less. Right. It would just be something people would tell around the campfire or even babysitters would tell to scare the children that they were babysitting. I mean, you must remember some stories like this from your youth that like kids used to just tell each other. Oh, yeah. Like Bloody Mary and that kind of stuff, yeah. too. You know, <laughs> of course. Yeah. That, I mean, that's that's where I heard it. And I'm watching the movie and I'm going, oh, yeah, I thought this was in a movie, but I didn't think it was from a movie. And I was like, no, this is like an urban legend sort of thing. So good. Yeah. So that like that's what it was inspired on. Actually, if you look throughout films they actually weren't the first one to be inspired from this story okay. there was a film in 1974 called black christmas oh yeah yeah remake. yeah that's a good one i like that i've not seen the the remake i've heard very split things on the remake or the reimagining but i like that original one very very creepy cool like i wasn't sure how famous it was but apparently that's from 1974 and that was really the first movie to take elements of this urban legend but the movie we're talking about today, When a Stranger Calls, is really the one that took it to the next level yeah. in terms of people really knowing that line, you know, with the caller being in the house. or So you know, smart, ha- man, to be like, no one's used this story yet. Like, let's put it on film. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. It's got instant, like there's, an inst- there's a built-in audience to it. Whether the audience knows it or not, when that line comes out on screen, I'm sure everybody in their like primal brain goes, holy shit. I remember that. Absolutely. Praise on these, like, I would call, like, almost primitive human fears of someone being there and not knowing the darkness and, and all these, like, classic things. So, you know, I'm eager to see, you know, your thoughts on the film and thoughts on the different parts and in general. But one more production note I wanted to mention before we get into the cast is that this is the first film for a cinematographer called Donald Peterman. And Donald Peterman, he would go on to have an amazing career. I hadn't heard of him, but I wrote down like some of the films he did that I was familiar with. So he was nominated for Oscars twice. He did Flashdance, Splash, Cocoon, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, a film we've talked about. <laughs> wow, he likes time. to work with water a lot, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Point Break, Men in Black, and his last film, he did films in between that, of course, too. But his last film was How the Grinch Stole Christmas, you know, like the Jim Carrey version. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, like, this is not a attractive film to watch. Like, it's kind of messy. It's a little, like, kind of rough around the edges. Like, But, I, you know, the more I think about it, I think that kind of helps it. Like, it's a gritty, sort of, it's got gritty production value. It feels almost like... 
um, a very independent feature or something like that, or like mm-hmm. like a student film at times, which makes sense now that you say it's sort of from a uh, short film expanded on a short film and stuff. So all these things that I'm watching it at the time going like, these are distractions and detracting me from the experience. Like afterwards thinking about it, I'm like, no, it's actually like what's sticking in my mind now. <laughs> it's like it's yeah, got no, a very yucky sort of vibe to it all along. It's one of these films that I understand why maybe it's probably not in most horror people's top tens, of course not, but I also understand why it inspired so many filmmakers, because it might be like not the greatest cohesive film writing-wise or structure-wise or anything like that, but there are certain elements that linger with you. Yeah, I think it's um, probably more inspiring than it is well known even maybe i know that sounds weird but like the whole scream telephone can see like never even crossed my mind but makes perfect sense like there's a moment in here where a killer is going to escape from an asylum and someone's tracing him down and like that's all of like half the plot of halloween you know and like Mm -hmm. you know so like there's a lot of influential things going on here but i feel like the movie itself doesn't get the credit maybe that it that it's due Maybe it's starting to. Maybe because the ideas are grand, but the execution isn't really that perfect. Like, it's very jarring at times. I'm lost as to what's going on, some of the movie. And those things, like, actually kind of hurt the experience for me. But I think that there's a great idea here. The biggest criticism, really, and by the way, this film made a pretty good amount of money for when it came out in 79, especially for what it was. But the biggest criticism when people watch it back now is that there's not enough jump scares or there's certainly almost no gore, oh, right? Like oh, you- yeah. That's probably another <laughs> thing as to what you were you know, talking about earlier is like, this is not a gory movie. It's not even all that. It's a psychodrama. Like, it's very psychological thriller type of stuff. And maybe there wasn't much of that around at the time. It reminds me almost sometimes of like Taxi Driver things going on in that universe mm-hmm. or something but it's got that same mood to it and it's unnerving yeah yeah unnerving is a great word for it because like while this is yes in the horror genre it really is more like you said just kind of like a thriller you know and, and maybe it doesn't even execute on all those notes at times but let's get into the cast quickly so we can really dive into yes you know what this movie is our lead here well first listed lead is charles derning yes. uh, as john clifford I mean, I've seen this guy forever. Where do you know him from? It's Doc Hopper from the Muppet movie. Frog legs, yeah, frog I, I, legs, frog legs. <laughs> I was going to say. That's how I grew up knowing this guy. And then he's in like every Coen Brothers movie imaginable, right? Like that's the other thing where I picked up on him as an adult. I was like, holy shit. I can't believe Doc Hopper is actually like one of the most renowned character actors of our time. <laughs> I never knew. But yeah, this guy's everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. And that's what I was going to say. I'm sure some older listeners will know him from other stuff because he's had a long prolific career. But for me, it's Coen Brothers stuff. And you're right, the Muppet movie. So yeah, I was like, oh, this guy, that's cool. Seems like an odd choice these days. But back then, like detectives look like detectives in movies and you know, more more often than not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. I was happy to see Carol Kane because I'm actually a big Carol Kane fan. I love Taxi. So, you know, she oh, plays like okay. Andy Kaufman's opposite in that. But she stealthily has been in a ton of high school films. And we'll talk about her 
in later episodes, mm-hmm. but License to she's drive. in like, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say she's in high school films pretty much of every generation. So she's in License to Drive, as you mentioned, as like the mom, right? Yeah. She's in the film Jawbreaker. I don't know if you've seen Oh, Jawbreaker okay. Uh-huh. As uh-huh. a teacher. And then she's in like a Lindsay Lohan vehicle a couple years after that, Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, also as a teacher. So like <laughs> almost every generation has, has seen her like pop up in these films. So I was happy we get one where she's actually a teenager, though she's 27 when she shoots this. But you get why they have to do that, because she also is coming back seven years later. Yes. So yeah. They could, they could have picked someone young and aged them up, but it's probably safer to pick someone in their 20s and age them down since they do that anyway. So I think by this point she had been in Annie Hall, if I'm not mistaken, yes. and like yes. worked like done a lot of stage work I think, but worked with Woody Allen a whole bunch, and like this was not the role I would ever expect her to play. Like I never took her for someone. I don't know. All of her characters just seem very strong and very forward women and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like I, it's just strange. I never associated her with the weakness it takes to portray this character i guess i don't know i always thought of her as smarter than that so i did have a little trouble at first associating her with the sort of damsel role or, or the victim role we'll say yeah i totally get that um it, it was odd because even when she's playing these strong characters she often plays comedic roles as well yeah. she's a very distinct look a very distinct voice i think she's a great actor something funny so you know high school slumber party is not my full-time job as you may know Mike Manzi what? and the world out there. <laughs> and she actually lives in a building next to where I work. People I've worked with have run into her while working and such because she has like an apartment next to one of our clients. And Alexa, who has been on this show before, she says like, oh, next time I see her, I'm going to ask her to be on High School Slumber Party. <laughs> <laughs> I, I doubt it'll happen. But we have a lot to talk about, Carol Kane. So. It would be great if she's like, I'm, I don't know if they're still shooting Kimmy Schmidt, but if she's like, I give my notice, I'm going to be co-host of a High School Slumber oh my, Party. Well, that would be great, yeah. <laughs> if, no, but that if she just like doesn't, if, Q&A, yeah. if that was the message she got, and she's like, okay, I'm here to be your co-host, and you're like, I just wanted one episode, but okay. I thought about asking her once. I've seen her like once or twice at like a cafe. But come on, you can't really be like, hey... I host the podcast. Come on it. While she's like yeah. enjoying a wine. A well, glass you of can't wine do it like friend. that. <laughs> Just because you're in the city, you can't be some kind of hipster douchebag and be like, yay. It's, uh, I do a, <laughs> I do a Princess Bride podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, no, just got to be cool and subtle about it. And just like, oh, yeah, you know, I love your work. By the way, too bad we don't have business cards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Carol, if you're listening out there, if you happen to be a stealthy Oh, if fan, she was already listening, she'd have gotten in touch with you by now, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you never know. She might be a new listener this week. She might be like, oh, someone remembered my movie. Carol, <laughs> my people will be in touch with your people. I'd love to have a great Q&A with you. I'm an admirer of your work. <laughs> so, I don't know if you recognize too many other people in the cast, but I did want to mm. talk about the guy who plays the killer, Tony Beckley, because he has one of the most fascinating stories of a cast person I've ever seen while doing this show. Was he a real killer in real life? Because this guy fits the role like, perfectly. I mean, unfortunately, this is his last role ever. So this guy, Tony Beckley, was a veteran actor of stage and screen, but his uh, story with this movie is one of a lot of struggle. Right before he started to shoot this movie, he was diagnosed with a terminal illness. 
And basically they're like, buddy, you're dying. And he was supposed to get more into character in the role. If you remember, they describe him as like a sailor and such. Oh, vaguely. Okay. Everything I read said like he didn't really fit the bill for what they wanted the character to be. But the director was good friends with him, so he refused to fire him. And some of, I believe from watching it, it seems like some of his uh, mannerisms in this come from the fact that he's facing death soon so oh, no now i really feel eerie. bad now i feel bad for saying that like he's no, got a no. creepy killer vibe to him because those are just like the thralls of death approaching and stuff and like him trying to cope with that i guess and there's another weird thing too apparently he had a huge issue with carol kane not like hating her but he became obsessed with her and mainly her acting i don't know i don't know if it got creepy we'll have he to ask her when she's call done. her on the phone late at night and just start no <laughs> really got into i his don't role. know <laughs> i hope not but he thought she was a prodigy not saying she's not she wasn't or anything and he thought her acting was so tremendous that he didn't belong on the same screen with what? her so he got so insecure and he like had a nervous breakdown he couldn't he couldn't well, film this, his takes. This is all like perfect for the role because he's supposed yeah, to be really. obsessed with that character. <laughs> and it was like, you know, this role was taking a toll on him. And look, we can't dismiss the fact that he's diagnosed with a terminal illness here as something else that's weighing on his mind. But and she's she's a veteran as well. What is Colleen Dewhurst, who played Tracy, who was like the woman at the bar. Okay, yeah, the second victim, I guess you could say, or the yes, yeah. She really had to like talk him up and be like, no, 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 you can do it. We both can do it. Don't be intimidated by this young actor. And she like she finally let him get his act together, and he was able to finish the movie. But I'm like, that is so interesting That's and crazy. As sad as it is, it plays like you said. Like you can almost read that in this performance. It's like, come on, man, we got Charles Durning here, dude. Like. You know, you're good. But yeah, it's always interesting to hear like the, you know, that that is a very common thing, I think. Like you don't always hear about the occasions uh, and to what movie it's going on in or what actor. But I'm sure like everybody is going through some shit while they're trying to do certain roles and stuff. And, you know, go back and watch some Robert Downey Jr. movies, you know, while he's in recovery like what's that one with him and Val Kilmer like that's an incredible oh, kiss, movie Kiss Kiss Bang Bang Kiss Kiss Bang Bang's like one of the coolest movies ever and you could sort of literally see him with like the shakes in that movie because he's like coming out the other end of like that horrible run that he had with addiction and stuff but like yeah I mean a lot of times it might not be the best thing to say but a lot of times it supports the performance like incredibly and like this guy fit the role if you ask me I don't know I didn't never seen him before and I thought he was doing the best job so you know absolutely wherever wherever you are out there i thought you were better than carol kane in this movie he passed away one year after the film debuted he passed away in 1980 the director did not want this portrayal to be like the uh, michael myers he wanted people to have actually a little bit of sympathy for the character again i don't know if that always comes through but that's why we see (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we get a lot of scenes of him, more than the average killer, I'd say. Oh, yeah. And at times I wasn't even sure he was the killer. They're saying he escaped from a mental hospital, but like he just kind of wanders into a bar and like nothing on the news about him. None of this. You know, at least there was like an APB <laughs> yeah. out for Michael Myers. And then he gets his ass kicked at a bar for trying to talk, not even like hit on a woman, but just like it seemed to be like, hey, what's happening? Like, what time is it even or something? You know, I don't even think he was. I don't know. It was crazy. But uh, once I found out he was the killer, I was like, oh, I see what they tried to do there. 
they wanted you to be sort of like empathetic towards him and all this stuff. But no, I, I was a little too confused <laughs> during the whole like police procedural part of this because when we flash seven years later, and I might be embarrassing myself by saying this, but I thought the lady at the bar was supposed to be like grown up Carol Kane's character. <laughs> <laughs> and like it took me a minute or two or, or a couple scenes to figure it out. No, like that's not what's going on here. So, you know, I think that's one of the detriments to the structure of the way this movie is put together, too, is, like, Carol Kane doesn't come back until, like, suddenly, with 15 minutes left, it's like, oh, my God, here she is again, and she's got kids of her own, and now she needs a babysitter, and it's like, history is repeating itself now. (laughs) Which, I wish they kind of merged those two parts to make the movie rather than this noir thing. But before we get there, let's talk about this for the first 20 minutes of the film. Okay. Because the reason we're talking about this film is the first 20 minutes. You know, there's not really much to say because it, it plods out so slow. There's not a lot of music. But again, this is the part that has influenced people. What did you think overall of this opening scene where she comes in with her books? She says the, uh, the doctor's name wrong. I don't think she's babysat for them before because she's introducing herself. And she's kind of having these, like, just teenage conversations with her friend on the phone. Like, oh, he likes you? No, I want him to like me. Can you have him call me here? That kind of stuff. And then, of course, we get to this, like, slow build of check on the kids and all that. Uh, So what do you think of this opening? Bobby? Have you checked the children? What? Dr. Mandrakis? Oh, yeah, sure. Dr. Mandrakis. So I thought it was pretty good. Like, it took me a minute to kind of settle in. There's the horrible ADR, you know? For some reason, like, all the dialogue <laughs> has been replaced after the fact. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. <laughs> but once, like, she's alone, I was like, this is really interesting. It's like a play. I'm watching, like, a one-woman show or something like that because then the, like, the phone starts ringing and all that kind of thing goes on. And um, it really builds pretty well, gradually and organically and everything. I think she's good. She's got huge anime eyes so like it's great for horror movies yeah so maybe in that regard she is good casting and stuff because they're super duper expressive that's why i think she does so much comedy because she has a very expressive face but you're right like it does translate 
for for like at least you know thrillers and and slashers and and while I think you're right like this is not like a typical role for her I could see another career path where she did movies like this because like again she does have such an expressive face yeah I think it just the fashion became to have like teenage fodder for these types of movies later down the mm-hmm. line not someone who's like a actually like a very good thespian to be in these types of movies later no on. they would try to pick like a, a hot girl who's gonna get naked <laughs> yeah yeah like pretty that, much. that was more their their idea yeah. not like a expressive successful actor you know <laughs> yeah so one thing that didn't work for me it actually worked well during the beginning of the movie but this is something that kept reoccurring and i want to know if you caught this most of the music of this movie is the THX test sound from the movie theater. Yeah, <laughs> Have you yeah. Picked up I, on that? I was confused. I was gonna ask again. I know you weren't around in '79, but like, were they still running no. this sound? No, THX didn't come into. It wasn't a business until the first. So the first Star Wars was when Lucas created his, you know, empire and everything. Mm-hmm. It was Lucasfilm, and then. After that, he created THX Sound and, you know, what would go on to become Pixar and Skywalker Sound and all that kind of shit would come, like, a couple years later. So I wondered if the sound designer over at Lucas Ranch, like, used that orchestra sting from this soundtrack as, like, a test because of how... It sort of travels and it grows like that in your speaker to, like, that crescendo. But that is definitely it, I think. (laughs) It's gotta be. I was so confused because they would never use that today because people would think the same thing. They'd be like, what? You know? (laughs) That's not in the trivia anywhere or nothing? No, I'm looking it up now. So it's called THX's Deep Note. The Deep Note? Yes. It premiered in Return of the Jedi. That was the first time they used it beginning in a movie. But I'm trying to see. It's crazy, folks. Like, it is banana pants. Like, when you hear it, you can't unhear it, is the way that I thought of it. And so I thought it was cool in the opening part because you only get it once. Um, but then you get it, like, a lot throughout the rest of the movie. I feel it's overused. And and it goes on to be more music. It's not just that. That's the beginning note to an actual piece of orchestration. So Yeah, I mean, in the Wikipedia article, it's mentioned that it's used in this film, but it doesn't really talk about the origins. Apparently... The Beatles song, A Day in the Life. They, oh, okay, yeah. Y- you know, th- there's like origins of it there as well. Apparently, like, like the sound. the impossible note, like at the end of that song, <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. It's like, this is something that uh, musicians, apparently, since the days of Bach, have been like toying with. Because it's like, I don't know, it's something. Mm-hmm. From reading this quick Wikipedia article on air, it's like, this. it's called digital perfection. Because it's a way to touch everything, you know, in sound. Huh. So... I guess, I don't know. It is weird to hear, because I was like, what? I almost thought, like, again, I know it's not feasible in this era, but I almost thought, like, she put the TV on or something. (laughs) (laughs) That was weird. And like you said, how it reoccurs, it's like, it is odd. I hate to say it, but, and I didn't hate this movie or anything like that. Stuff like that made it, and the ADR 
uh, made it seem like a, just, again, a lower-budget horror film. Like, it had some really good ideas, but it's certainly, you know... it. You see, like, again, with Scream, like, Wes Craven, like, he sees this idea and he's like, I'm almost going to make it better, and my rest of the movie is going to be better than this rest of the movie. There's even movies that were like this before this, where there's someone creeping around the house. I mean, there's an amazing Gary Busey film called Hider in the House, which would <laughs> come out, you know, almost almost a decade later, where he is literally hiding in a house while a family lives there. Yes, and he's, a favorite it, of Mr. Larson. It is fantastic. But even before this, there was Wait Until Dark with, um, what's her name? Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, Hepburn? Yeah, well, with Audrey Hepburn. It was almost going to be my one of my VHS picks at the end of the show, but she is a recently blind woman who lives alone, and these burglars break in, and she doesn't know they're there, and they're, like, creeping around. I think it was supposed to be a play, and then everybody decided, like, we need to make this a movie instead. It's got Alan Arkin is in it, a very young, wow. a very, very young one with hair. So, you know, this idea is part of horror history, I guess. You know, I'm sure in literature it even goes further back. But, yeah, like, this movie is filled with great ideas and nice little pieces. It's just, it's constructed by, like, a madman or, like, a maniac. <laughs> like, what's up with that cut after the 20 minutes ends and she opens the door and it's just like a like a freeze <laughs> frame of Doc Hop? I'm like, is he the killer? It doesn't even look like it's, yeah, him. It looks like it's a magazine cutout of him. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's just a still shot and then it, like, starts to move and... It's like, okay, now the movie just made a whole 180 and we're investigating this now. And then we're jumping seven years later and I'm just trying to sort of keep up for the next couple scenes. Yeah, you know, our kind of part two is that like seven years have passed. Just like Halloween, um, the killer, the psychopath as he's called, I'm using air quotes, is on the loose. I guess we didn't mention that the whole ending of that 20 minute sequence is that Apparently, the killer killed the children hours ago upstairs. So, like, she hasn't checked on them the entire time. And I guess he was trying to call her to lure her upstairs and kill her as well. I, mm. I don't know, because he's hiding in the house on an old line. It is fucking weird that hours went by and she didn't check on the kids. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying they should be killed, but I'm, I am saying, like, you know, she's not a good babysitter. <laughs> no, no. But I, I think her only excuse is that the parents essentially were like, don't bother them. They've been sick for a while you kind of just want to leave them alone yeah you, I you don't want to you don't want to play with them and you know do <laughs> monopoly or anything like that but you want to check in and be like do you need some hot water or like some soup <laughs> yeah just peer your head and make sure they're there you know yeah breathing <laughs> there's not some maniac in the room yes but it's every parent's nightmare obviously to leave their home and to come back and find out that their children are dead like there's nothing worse than that actually before we fast forward uh, the seven years we just have the Charles During character talking to the cop who later like becomes I don't know if a chief or a lieutenant or whatever just about what's going on and you see them bring out the two like little body bags and it's just like oh shit this is a nightmare yeah was he so my qu my question to you was was he the cop she was on the phone with oh that's a good question I wasn't sure because I was trying to figure out that as the movie started because you see you know in the titles you know you know Charles Durning is going to be in this so I was like I had never seen this movie before. 
I didn't think after the first 20 minutes it was sort of going to end and start over again. I thought like it was going to be like a, you know, I don't know if you can see my air quotes, but a quote unquote normal movie where it's just like we're going to build this up for like an hour or 40 minutes or something. And like people are going to stop by and it's going to be like this whole tease, a cat and mouse thing. So I want to say yes, though. Otherwise, what the hell is he doing there? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, because that would motivate him to also like have the guilt of the case later. Yes, totally. Like, calm down, blah blah blah. You know, because then eventually he tells her like, keep the guy on the line for a minute, and uh, so we can trace the call. And then when he calls back, he's like, leave the house. The call, the killer's in the house, and he's calling from inside the house. Yes, he's ooh, and that's that is chilling. I'm not going to be here much longer. Dr. Mandrakis and his wife are coming home. I know. Can you see me? Yes. Sorry, I turned the lights down. Turn them back up if you like. You really scared me, if that's what you wanted. Is that what you wanted? No. What do you want? Dr. Mandrakis will take me home. Or maybe even the police. Call the police. I I want to talk to you. see that the kids were murdered or whatever and then you're not sure if you're gonna get carol kane again because when it flashes forward it's a weird cat and mouse game because apparently charles erning has left the forest and he's like a private eye i don't think he gets a lot of cases but 
we learn he's hired by the doctor whose children have been killed because the killer has escaped the uh, facility that he was in. It it was a, a mental facility, a hospital that he has escaped. So obviously everyone's on edge. But I mentioned it before. What's striking about this movie is almost we get like a day in the life of the killer, you know, like yeah. he goes, he goes to the bar. He's kind of, you know, homeless, like begging for scraps and stuff. Yeah. I can't really recall another horror movie where I feel like, a, I mean, oh, okay. So like, there's actually one that comes to mind, Henry portrait of a serial killer, which I've only seen once, but it's incredible. Michael Rooker is in it. And I believe like it's mostly we just we follow the serial killer all the time. Mm-hmm. That's like the only other thing I can think of and like that's the whole movie. You know, stuff like Taxi Driver again, I think was it even out yet? I don't know, but like it just seems like those kinds of characters were just sort of starting to be big. You know, there's a very sort of Travis Bickle-esque sort of thing going on when you try and empathize with a maniac basically you know or when you try to get the audience to see the humanity in a monster i don't think this movie succeeds in doing that but i give it kudos for attempting to do something like that yeah i mean i and i was with you too i was thinking like maybe the twist is that he didn't kill the kids maybe he's coming back because you know he's trying to warn Carol Kane or someone because then it would make sense why we're trying to be sympathetic to him but it turns out that is not the case at all because he just apparently he just like left his ID at the crime or they capture him and then he has an ID or whatever at the crime scene Um, so like he wasn't very sneaky at all about this no Uh, (laughs) but you know maybe he was framed or something that's what I was thinking because I was trying to question why would they be taking so much effort to make us think like hey, maybe he's not so, so much of a bad guy when he murdered two children. <laughs> yeah, no, I that thought definitely crossed my mind, too. I was like, could it be that, like, even Carol Kane was crazy and, like, just imagined someone was calling? Or is there a way that they were trying to... I mean, no, that's not what they're going for at all. But, like, it got to a point in my head where I was like, is this movie smarter than I think it is? No, it's it's not, like... It's definitely smart, right? But it just... I don't know. It's having problems communicating what it means at times. Some like way more than other movies, you know, even like ones that are as loosely stitched together. Yeah, I don't know. I still it still has like enough interesting new things in it, though, to be like, oh, you should check it out. Like there's definitely merit to all the things going on here, even if mm-hmm. it's um, sort of not packaged in the most attractive way. <laughs> So what did you, I guess, enjoy about this, like, middle section of Charles Durning trying to catch the killer? We got a chase. We got a naked shower scene with the killer. We got a <laughs> bunch of stuff. Was there anything you enjoyed? Well, I like the idea of restarting your movie 20 minutes in. It's almost like you get the sequel in, like, you get one part one and part two in the same movie in a weird way. Like, I think of this every time I watch Death Proof. Have you seen Death Proof, the Tarantino? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, like, the first, it's like a two-hour, pr- pretty much a two-hour movie, or it's like an hour and 90 minutes. So it's like 40 minutes is one story, and then there's another 40 minutes, which is like another story. And since it's like a grindhouse movie, it just feels like someone took the two films and 
spliced them together. Like someone took Death Proof 1 and 2 and just put them back to back and cut out like, you know, the fat or whatever, you know. Uh, And so this kind of felt like that to me. Like it had a very Grindhouse vibe to it where it was like, nope, there's no rules in films at this point. Like we're just going to stop it and start it all over again. And it's not a horror film now. It's a crime movie and it's like a hard-boiled detective thing and like deal with it or go home, go ask for your money back, you know? Like, this movie just is on its own terms, and there's just something very enticing about that that makes you keep watching, because I was like, where the hell is this going? Where's it going to go? It's got to go to a particular place at some point, maybe, and it does. Like, I definitely thought that Carol Kane stuff, when it showed up, I was not expecting it to come. She, I was like, she's gone for the rest of the movie. There's no way she's coming back. And she fucking comes back, and she, and they don't just pick up with her seven years later and make the movie about her as an adult with children trying to cope with the trauma. And, like, every time the phone rings, she jumps. And, like, no, there's none of that in this movie that I was definitely expecting to happen. It's, like, a whole unrelated story. <laughs> incident and it's kind of incredible in a weird way yeah again the killer has an interesting way of kind of bumbling around and not being aware of his surroundings and then suddenly being able to find his victims like i said we mentioned he kills the lady at the bar um and that that's creepy the way he's talking to her but he doesn't seem all there but i guess the and i keep we keep calling her (laughs) carol but her name in the movie is, let's see, Jill. Um, I guess Jill, she did some charity work. So she was in the newspaper. And, you know, she's married now with two kids. Her husband's got like a real, real 1979 perm that he kind of, <laughs> and he's, you know, he, he's, a, he, he's a man moving up in the world. He gets promoted and he's like, we're going out to dinner. <laughs> And he hires a babysitter. So we get another teenage babysitter, which is cool to see. And she's kind of, you know, like typical teenager, like nonchalant about it. I was interested to see that, you know, Jill even allowed a babysitter. To, she was a little apprehensive, we could tell, yeah. you know. Yeah, that was a weird thing, I guess. But like, you know, it's been seven years. They caught yeah. the guy. She doesn't know he escaped. And she definitely has the response uh, the appropriate response later when she finds out like what's absolutely, going on. Absolutely, absolutely. So when they're out to eat, they get a call. When she picks up, it's at the restaurant, and when she picks up, it's the killer. And yes, like you said, her reaction is so visceral and real and exactly what, I, in my opinion, what anyone in that situation would feel like. It, it was scary. It was scary because I'm like, oh, no, if we, we if we see two sets of kids die in this film, I'm going to be like, what the hell? Yeah, you know? yeah, that's so grim to begin with. And like, that's what this is such an unconventional type of horror movie in those ways where it's just so much more grounded, I guess, is maybe that's what like all that middle stuff with the cop does is it disarms you and... It's like, no, like, we're going to get back to it at the end and remind you, like, there's some real, like, terror involved in this concept. And, like, you know, when it just when you think you could let your guard down and, like, yeah, I'm, I'm over it. I'm going to hire a babysitter or, like, I'm even going to have kids in the first place. Right. Yeah. And then I'm going to have another kid um, and, like, a whole chain of babysitters in between all this to the point where I have security in the fact that I feel like I could just, like, go out anytime at night. 
and then to just have that like pulled that rug just pulled out from under you <laughs> she's almost, it's almost like too good a moment for this movie in a lot of ways like you can see like that's where they're like we went with a real actor here and not just you know some scream queen yeah i mean i thought that it was impressive i also found it fascinating that he actually wasn't there right or maybe he was hiding or something because when they went home like it's not like they rushed home to find like a crime scene that's what i thought we were yeah gonna yeah 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 no, so did I. But it was more like, you know, just a wait and see. Obviously, she's there paranoid. I mean, it's a little crazy and creepy, and I don't know how the killer eventually gets the husband unconscious and throws him in a... Do We We don't see that, right? We don't see how, what no, he does no, with no. the husband? Because, like, to me, like, the biggest jump scare of the movie is when she's like, oh, my God, she's in bed. She thinks the killer might be there. She turns around to wake her husband, and it's the killer in the bed. I mean, yeah, it's a great moment. It's so weird. It makes no sense. But like, it makes no sense because, like, when he, like, he's so aimless. Wouldn't he have just killed? Not aimless, but you know what I mean. He's like, it doesn't seem like he's a well thought out person. Wouldn't he have just killed her if he could get alone in bed with her and be sleepy? Like, not for the jump scare. You know, we've seen this in other horror films. Like, it's cool, but why? Why is it happening? That's the thing. Like, even all the time we spend with this guy, and we still don't have a clear understanding of like what his mo is or anything like that. What is his motivation? Like, what's his modus operandi? Like, why is it the phone that is his fetish? Why them? I mean, I get why her before, but why the original family? Yeah, and then why not kill? Like, and this is gonna sound terrible, I know, but if this is his thing as a killer, why not kill those? Why not kill her kids? Like, he got there before her clearly, and the kids were fine. Like, he now is on to killing husbands, and you know, I get it if you're gonna like hide under the sheets, right? But like, let us know that like he's that's like what he's into somehow, some way. But like, all we get to see is like, he gets the shit kicked out of him by some guy at a bar. And after Charles Durning chases him down and, and like kind of like loses him, right. Let's him go in a weird way. Like they sort of give up, a he give up looking for him. And then we see him like tucked away in some corner, like yelling at himself about how he's like, um, invisible and no one can see me. It's like, where's that throughout the whole 40 minutes we needed more character development on the killer we're spending so much time with him and we hardly knew ye (laughs) i mean but it is scary when he's in the room with her like i can't say that it's not or anything like that oh yeah because it's just an inherently horrifying image and thought that you know every night you roll over and it's your husband or your wife and this time it's like this deranged killer from seven years ago (laughs) yeah and the look on his face and all that kind of thing combined like yeah it's definitely frightening i found it interesting too with that previous bar scene that they already established that he's not he doesn't again have michael Myers strength he is not that strong like his that's not his skill his skill is like sneaking and hiding essentially yeah so so i wasn't like too worried that he would come back to life like in horror films he didn't seem supernatural he just seemed off if that makes sense okay yeah i actually didn't expect him to come back at all i actually thought we were just gonna go to like a new 
guy using the same, mm. you know, calling someone like a copycat killer or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that would have been cool then if he felt bad maybe about the killing the kids originally and he was like going to warn her or something, you know. And then it turned out to be a copycat killer. I, part of me was thinking, like, maybe Charles Durning is involved somehow. Yeah, like that would have been good. Like, cause it, it would explain, like, why he's off the force. Maybe he was kind of losing it. And he didn't even realize he was actually the losing killer. Losing you know? it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there could be some more meat on the bone here. I don't know how the sequel or the remake treated all these elements. I probably will never know. But <laughs> Oh, you know we're coming back next year for the remake at least. <laughs> it's got Selma Blair. Oh, does it? I think so. I thought that was her on the cover. <laughs> um, I'll look into it. No stranger to teenage movies herself. No, right? it's true. It's true. We'll discuss that a little bit more towards the end. But I guess, how did you like this ending? It ends with... The, I thought the husband was dead, but no, he just kind of falls out of the closet. But Charles Durning randomly, not random, but shows up saves and... Saves the day. Saves the day, shoots the killer. I guarantee, though, that Jill will never be able to sleep at night again. <laughs> She's going to be sleeping all day now, up all night. Night owl. <laughs> um, yeah, it's good. You know, it's, um, it's a very sort of standard conclusion it's very strange to see like this guy is not your typical hero he's just like very much your average average joe you know he's oh, he's not in amazing shape there's even no. a couple shots of him running and he jiggles and, <laughs> like all this you know and and it's great that uh it doesn't matter you know he's a good character he stuck to the job he had his instincts and he got his killer in the end Caught him in the act, no less. Yeah, and then the movie kind of just ends right there. You know, yeah, I've got to love Coda that. Or anything. Abrupt, just get out of the theater endings. Just, just get out. You and I, have, <laughs> you and I have covered a lot of endings like that, like Karate Kid, and there's some other ones too, where it's just like. Oh yeah, I mean, know. I don't know if you know, I don't know how young your main audience is, but ending credits are kind of a new thing. They're only like 20 years old. Like I, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, still. To get even two or three minutes of credits was a rarity. You get everybody get all the opening credits while the movie's already started. All the opening credits like in the corner and the side and all that kind of stuff. Like it was just a, a, a rash of films that it would always do that. And it would just be big movies like Ghostbusters would need like a lot of credits because it's a huge special effects film, right? Like Indiana Jones would, but like not a lot of other movies. That was a that was not a commonplace as you would uh, imagine until no, recently. I feel I feel like people today like elongate the credits, you know. Oh yeah, and then they've moved the opening credit sequences to the end of the movie, like uh, especially with all the Marvel films, you know, yeah. like ordinarily those like in the 90s you'd get all these lavish opening credit sequences now and it's like, "Oh, cripes. Like I got to sit <laughs> through this um sometimes, but yeah. I like how it's just like we're over, it's done. So we mentioned that there were uh there was a sequel and then a remake. The sequel I was reading about like what the plot was because Charles Durning comes back. What? Ca- Carol Kane comes back? No. Um, yeah, so maybe we do have to check it out at some point. I think we do. <laughs> but, oh wait, but, but they're not in high college. school. Yeah. Yes, it's and college I'm, though. College? She's Yeah, so what No, what? no, but here's what happens. Here's the scoop, Mike. I'll give it to you. What's the 411, Brian? <laughs> it's about some other girl. I believe she is a... I glean that she's a college student, not necessarily a high school student, but she experiences a similar thing while babysitting. And Oh, no, no, no. 
So the beginning does take place in high school again. I'll have to oh. watch it to see if it qualifies. Can have to five it. years later. Oh. Yes. <laughs> five years later, she goes to college, and she's still torn. This is like a new character, and she's still tormented by what's going on. And guess who happens to be a counselor at that college? Oh. Jill. Oh. None other than. I was going to no. say hey. Charles Darning. No. <laughs> no, no, no. None other than Carol Kane. Nice. And when, when she hears that this happens, she gets nervous, like, wait a minute. Uh-oh. Could this be related? So she contacts Charles Durning to investigate. Oh, that's nice so. that they're still in touch. Yeah. So they want to send each we... other Christmas cards. Remember that traumatic experience will... that linked our lives forever yeah. now? <laughs> Maybe we will uh, check it out. All right. Not bad. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because like, this has to be one of the movies with the least amount of high school in it, right? That you've ever watched? I mean... For sure, for sure, and I knew that going in. Okay, it's, it, it's again, it's about a high school yes. babysitter, and it, and I thought it would bring up a lot of topics related to babysitting and high school babysitting that I wanted to talk about, which it did because you know a lot of these movies, like I said, are going to be erotic. A lot of these movies are going to be <laughs> funny that we cover, or like adventures in babysitting. Well, I want to write a movie with you called Landline that takes place in the '80s, and it's like the movie I thought this was going to be, where it's like over the course of maybe a couple nights, she gets these calls, and like you know, there's more than one babysitter that that gets maybe murdered, and you know what I mean. Like, let's leave the little children out of it this time, but yeah, like there's. There's another angle to this that isn't as needlessly complex, even though it turned out to be pretty cool. Yeah. I love that title, Landline. Hey, maybe we'll be inspired like Wes Craven and we'll right. have a hit on our hands. Exactly. Landline, trademarked, copyright, Mikester movies. So, <laughs> And I, I can't wait till we get to Landline 3, where you could direct and talk about <laughs> it on your show. Oh, my God. Landline 3. This time it's personal. It's, yeah, it's a fax machine. <laughs> right. Well, that's with like dial-up modems and stuff. Yeah, it's going to yeah. get elaborate once we approach the 90s. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, but that, that's a good idea, actually. Anything else you want to mention in regards to this film or to high school babysitting in general? <laughs> well, in regards to this film, the bar that they go to is called Torchies. And uh, yes. that's just like a great name for a dive bar. <laughs> and this is one dive bar. I thought that was Do good. Do you want to know some facts about this bar because it was one of the things oh that definitely had the most facts really uh, let me see it's I a didn't, real I didn't bar think, <laughs> i didn't think you'd ask so i have it deep in my notes hold on <laughs> the downtown bar where duncan and tracy meet was torchies at 218th and a half okay west fifth street in los angeles california okay it is the same bar served as the filming location for the redneck bar in 48 hours and it was also featured in brewster's millions nice okay <laughs> very cool two movies two, two interesting movies i mean i guess i'll bring this up now too like this is an interesting film like rarely do films show like downtown los angeles yeah yeah we get that famous tunnel the blade runner tunnel or whatever you want to call yeah. it uh, you, you all the that. architecture when i think of downtown los angeles i think of like Dick Tracy era, you know, PIs and stuff, because like mm-hmm. they used to feature it a lot more in those. LA films. Confidential. Other, LA Confidential, good, good one. The only other film that I really remember it featured in was a film that we talked about on your podcast, Rocky Three. Because that's where <laughs> oh right, to, that's where Apollo's that's where from. Train. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's where he trains, and that's where. Paulie gets really racist. Paulie, <laughs> what do you mean gets? Good... What do you mean gets really racist? <laughs> Paulie is 
lined one movie one racist <laughs> through and through till the end of his appearance in the Rocky saga. That is it. <laughs> From the grave, he is still spouting racism. <laughs> I don't want to get too political, but... We you don't know, want to get like, as political as Rocky IV now. No, 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 no. We don't want to get Rocky get political. IV political. But we know, uh, you know, Paulie, not a man of 2020, we'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> not a man of the 21st century at all. <laughs> He's like one of those cowboys after the 1900s where time just left them behind and, you know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, so the award's going to be a little difficult today because there wasn't a lot of high schoolers. Um, we might need to disqualify the Wooderson Award. But, you know, not all of them are high school related. Like, the Wooderson Award is just a character who you would have liked to have seen more of. Is there anyone who you wanted to see more of here? Since Considering the film had so much structural questions i'm sure there's a way you might rewrite it with a through this oh well yeah i want more carol kane throughout like the whole movie you know i feel like as good as those opening 20 minutes are and as exciting as the last 20 minutes are when they bring her back like stretch that shit out like that is gold like i said i did not i did not like see her fit to this role originally but like she is perfect for this role like she's super expressive like she's just got a great demeanor like i think there's just something about maybe the way i don't know it's just like the whole performance is great and so it's a bummer that she's not in most of the movie like in that extra middle of the movie like i just needed more of her yeah i I couldn't agree more with that take um it's it's a shame and it would have been more of a high school film technically if she was in more of it those are my favorite parts it should be a surprise to no one but i think they're going to be everyone's favorite parts the parts with her in it. Again, I get that they made a 20 minute short, but you know, you had a better idea for how to extend this than they did. I think no offense. Yeah, No, but I think that's why this movie's remembered mostly is because of its weird, because of how weird it is because of its strange structure and it's sort of avant-garde in that way. Like it's kind of experimental filmmaking in a way, you know, you could argue that like it's an underground movie. It's got a lot of that independent, cachet going Mm -hmm. for it even for the 70s even for like the late 70s at the time and stuff so if it was more the way i've described it i don't think it would just sort of fall to the waste it would just be another in a long line of movies like that now there's nothing wrong with those types of movies but again i don't think like it would have sort of uh it earns its prestige in a weird way you know what i'm saying by being the way it is yeah yeah, and for like mainstream viewers out there, it does something that I think a lot of quote-unquote bad movies can learn from. If you begin great and end pretty good, the best thing you can do is end great, right? But right. the second best thing you can do is begin great and end pretty good, I think. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're going to make up for a lot of middle stuff that maybe you don't enjoy. Like, There's nothing that ruins a movie worse than a bad ending, obviously. And there's... Almost equally, there's nothing that ruins a movie almost worse than a bad beginning, too, because you just don't get into it. So th- this film does do, like, the minimum in terms of bookending it pretty well. So that's what I did like. Now, Long Duck Dong Award is probably related. Is there any character whose omission you would have uh, made from the film? doesn't have to be racist, but is there anyone you would right. take away? Um, so... You know, this might also fall into the category of it's either get rid of him or expand his role. But Charles Durning's friend that he goes to, is that the doctor who's like having the party at first? 
the tall guy with the mustache. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, no, he's the cop. He's the cop. He's a cop, too? See, like, I didn't even know what this guy was doing yeah, in the movie. when he enters in the first scene, he's the cop who discovers the bodies. And oh, I didn't even Charles recognize thing. him as that same guy. <laughs> Great. Wow. And then, he repla- and then he replaces him when Charles Durning leaves the force. Whoa. A lot of that just did not stick with me. I think we don't need that. I think we know enough about the cop. Like, we need more about the killer. Like, I don't need to know who the cop's friends are and who his replacement was. Let him <laughs> let him just be, like, a Bogart and out on his own. And, uh, you know, show me more about, like, the killer's neighbor. Everybody said Jeffrey Dahmer was such a nice, quiet boy, right? Like, where's that character? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll only stick up for this character that you're talking about a little bit because um and it's related to this award the depictions of people of color in this film aren't the best and this is one guy who is a person of color who is in a prominent position who ends up helping out a lot it, it, he's as a situation yeah. under control I get he is unnecessary to the story. I agree with you there. But if you were to delete him, all the people of color are like drunk homeless people. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, that's a good call. I didn't like that depiction. Like, so it, yeah. there's something there's something that needs to be tweaked right. somewhere in that area. Yeah, something you need to then like I said either get rid of him or beef it up. Like do something I don't know, make them partners, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's a function for him. I'm just not seeing it right now, but I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. I guess I would delete those, like, bands of drunk homeless people. It's like, we get it. You know? Yeah, that stuff too, then. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot that could be deleted here. This is definitely a movie that I guarantee if someone even had the footage of it still, could probably recut it and it might be better. Because there, there are a lot of good nuggets in here. But like you said, the structure is interesting, so I don't know. Now, this next award we might need to just disqualify because there's really only two high schoolers in the film and that's the cameron fry award did anyone look too old to be a high schooler and technically carol kane was 27 because she had to do like the dual roles of playing seven years older but so I'll, i guess i'll rephrase it did you feel like she was a convincing high schooler because you said you had some problems with it so i didn't know she was gonna come back as a I don't know, 25 year old or whatever, like at the end of the movie. So I'm watching it going like, I guess she was that young back then. I don't really know how old she is or anything. And as the opening's going, I'm, I buy her as a high school student, as a senior. She'd have to be a senior for sure. But yeah, sure. she's sort of just because she's kind of smaller, you know, she's got. And I think that works to her advantage for that part of the role. And I think it's really interesting to see her at the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie. At the end of the movie, she doesn't come across as small to me like i don't know if it's because like she's got the kids and they're smaller than she is so there's some kind of like perspective with thing going on or whatever but like i feel like she kind of yeah she plays younger in the opening and she's definitely playing older at the end and i feel like you could feel that yeah she actually looked like she grew up which was so weird, yeah. right? So I thought she would actually did a great job. So I, we might have to put an N.A. on this category today. Just not enough not high school. Not available. <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave this a 41% and the audience a 49%. So not great, but, uh, you know, yeah. we, we do things differently here on High School Slumber Party. We do our old A plus to F scale. So Mike Manzi, what will you grade When a Stranger Calls? The 1979 version. So this might actually, my final grade might not 
might be a little surprising. Like, um, watching the movie, I wasn't really that into it, to be quite honest. It wasn't until after the movie, sitting here thinking about it, and then coming on and talking to you about it, that I like it more, and it's sort of grown on me, to be quite honest. And I think part of it is because I've never seen it before, so there's a lot to digest, and I had not, I didn't know what to expect, and it took a lot of weird uh, liberties with itself. And, you know, I think it's a balance. Like the sort of bad production value is definitely against it, but its creativeness and its ideas are definitely a, you know, positive thing for it. So I, I'm going to have to go straight down the middle and give this a C. Maybe I'll give it a C plus. I'll give it a C plus, a little extra, because like I think you're saying, like it's it's more influential to other better movies. It's like this re- weird thing. Like, I feel like it's almost homework. Sometimes it's like horror homework. People, should, people <laughs> yeah. should see it because there's lots of weird, interesting ideas going on that I think have been done better down the line in other things, maybe. Or, or things have been taken or gleaned from this movie and applied better, you know, in more modern things or whatever. But, like, it's definitely got its own thing going on and it's, you know, there's... It's definitely worth 90 minutes of your time. And, uh, yeah, so I'm going to give it a little more than an average. I'll give it a C-plus tonight. That was actually my same score as well, C-plus. Um, it, it definitely helps talking it out and talking it over. And like you said, horror homework is a great way to put it. It's certainly influential. It's one of these films that, you know, like you said, it's 90 minutes. It doesn't take up too much of your time. It doesn't like make you want to just get up and do something else. Like I didn't feel bored while watching it. Confused at times, maybe, <laughs> but not bored. But I, I'm happy that I saw it because of, again, its influence. And you put someone less qualified than, than Carol Kane in this role, and maybe we're talking about how crappy this movie is. Well, I think yeah. she's so good. I think she's so good in this. I think that's a key component is I don't know how famous she was when this movie came out, but... Could have been a, one of those things where, like, this person went on to be a big, famous actress, you know? And it's like, oh, let's go look back at one of her early works, and it's like this really weird, obscure horror movie that's taking chances. And so, like, if she wasn't even in this movie to begin with, I think it just falls into a pile of latent, later, made-for-VHS schlockfests, you know? Like, <laughs> there's a thousand other movies like this that don't have Carol Kane and Charles Durning in it, but it's got, you know, like the understudies of them in it, right? People who look yeah. like them, who are mistaken for them, right? So I think a name and, you know, her credibility goes a long way now in retrospect when watching this movie. Yeah, I, I, and I do think it's essential. Again, you know I shouldn't be the one saying this. I am not the horror expert at all. But I think it is essential for anyone's, like, true horror collection, if they want to go through, like, the history of it, to have this film. I don't know how it was released or whatever, like in the modern era, but it is something that for me, it feels important. It feels there and maybe it's not a favorite, but it certainly has its place in horror history and high school slumber party history because, (laughs) well, we covered it on the show. So there we go. But also, again, I love this idea of like, you know, leaving your kids with a teenage babysitter and... This is the worst case scenario. You know, this is the worst. And it's not even her fault, honestly. It's not like, you know, she got into the hijinks or anything. But it's just, it's scary stuff. And it's it's realistic, scary stuff. We're not talking about monsters. Again, you and I both love monsters. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But we're not talking about 
that kind of stuff or aliens or goblins. We're talking about, you know, a very real thing that rarely happens but can happen. And that's that's a little bit bone chilling. Yeah, there's sort of a Jaws quality to this kind of thing, right? Where where you don't want to leave your kids alone with a stranger in the way you don't want to go swimming in the ocean. <laughs> like that's, I think that, that you hit it right on the head there. Like there's where Freddie and Jason are different and more of like a fantasy thing. Like this feels like an unsolved mysteries or something like that. Oh, and just to uh, fact check from before, it does look like Selma Blair in the poster, but it's not. It's Camilla Bell. Oh, okay. Okay. I've seen her in some stuff, but Clark Gregg is in it apparently. Oh, Agent so, Coulson? Yeah, sorry. And I'm talking about the uh, the new one, the 2006 one. Um, yeah, Agent Coulson is in it. Married to Jennifer Grey. Oh. Did you know that? know that? Yeah, baby. No. Yeah. That, that's so. interesting. Cool. <laughs> Good for him. The new one made a decent amount of money as, as well. It made $66 million and only a $15 million budget. I know that's not a huge hit, but it's still not losing money considering it has a 9% critic. I think they were remaking everything under the sun that season. <laughs> and that one is funny because it's 2006. So uh, just reading the plot quick, it's very similar, but it has to do with like cell phone minutes. And apparently there's more. It doesn't do the time jump thing. It, it stays in high school. So you know, oh, maybe we'll I... have to cover this as well. So it sounds like that's the movie's thing. Like you can't call it when a stranger calls unless there's a time jump. This one jumps seven years. The sequel uh, you read about jumps about five years. If this doesn't jump, then it's then it's just my idea. It's landline. It's not. <laughs> it's not when a stranger calls anymore. You got to jump no. those years. Very interesting, right? You know, I'd be curious to vet this one as well. Um, <laughs> just to see, just to see what it's like. I bet it would be a great double feature with the Prom Night remake we're going to have to cover next prom season. <laughs> Maybe that's what we'll be doing at that point, just High School Slumber Party double features. <laughs> okay, kind of an odd question, but one of my favorite questions every week. Sleeping bag, Mike. Oh, what is when? What does your When a Stranger Calls sleeping bag look like? Oh my goodness, what could it possibly look like? How do you, what is the, is there, um, what's the theme? Like, I don't know. I don't know, know. I don't know. I really don't know. I almost made the mistake of asking you what you're bringing, but uh, you don't I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, because I, I figured bag. you were going to ask. <laughs> Give me a bit of a clue here. I'll just say, I would just have one with the, like the, that old school rotary telephone just like blown up on it. <laughs> <laughs> Because a lot of people don't know what a rotary telephone is anymore. True, true, true. Um, okay, okay. This is toughy. I guess mine is going to be like, you know, oh, geez. I don't know. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> it could be anything. It could be, it doesn't even have to be inspired. From the oh, movie. well, I got one. I guess that's in, okay. inspired by, I, I'll bring my, I'll bring my official state asylum sanctioned sleeping bag which i guess would be a straight jacket maybe um i'll bring a straight jacket to sleep in this time around as my sleeping bag <laughs> or a sleeping bag that straps up like a straight jacket so you can of course escape. that's what yes. i figured <laughs> that would be interesting i don't know if that would be pc today you know but it would be something that it would be the talk of the slumber party so appreciate that one <laughs> Okay, Mike, you hinted that you're prepared for this one. So, you know, we're having our 
When a Stranger Calls Slumber Party, you and I, we go into that blockbuster, we rent the film, but we see that there's a deal that day. And of course, it's rent two movies, get one free. If our free movie is When a Stranger Calls, what two movies should we rent? Okay, so I've got sort of a serious pick and then a fun pick tonight. Cool. So my serious pick is this really creepy, scary movie that sort of gives off like a similar vibe i'd say it's it's much scarier than this but you could catch it i think it's out on the criterion collection now it's a british i think it's a british film it's got donald sutherland and julie christie and it's called don't look now and it's about a married couple who recently lost their daughter and they're in venice and a lot of weird fucked up scary shit goes on and it's just one of those sort of um, like what kind of like horror movies, you know, where it's just like, what is happening? Like, I don't know. Like, you, you're really not sure. Like, it keeps leading you on and you're not sure if you're following it until the end. But it, I guarantee, I promise you it all comes together uh, and it's incredibly weird. Um, and I don't know that, um, you know, I'm not I've not heard it come up a lot in conversations about horror movies so maybe it's because it's a bit older maybe because it's a bit foreign but uh yeah that's a that's a really weird one i like that one wow i never heard of that one cool so what's it called again so it's called don't look now don't look now cool so what's what's your funny pick then so this movie has become sort of like a recent favorite of mine like i watch this way too much i put it on every once in a while it's called Uninvited, not The Uninvited or anything like that. And it's got Spring Break, it's got mobsters, and it's got a mutant cat with a killer cat inside of it. So, like, <laughs> these kids are partying on a yacht, and they've got this experiment. This cat has been experimented on, and it comes into their possession. And, like, in a cat, like, a killer cat like comes out of the mouth of the other cat <laughs> i don't even know how to like explain it it's got george kennedy is in it for some reason oh my god like, and oh, from uh, 1987 i found it yeah That's interesting yeah yeah, yeah. certainly a cat this is a schlock fest like i found out about this on the <laughs> youtube show best of the worst uh, from red letter media like one of those one of those movies They've, there's a riff tracks for this movie um clue Gulliger is in it he's in a lot of horror stuff like he's sort of like a horror uh staple and a lot of things he's really fun in this this movie's insane there's actually two cuts there's two versions Ooh. neither of them make great sense but <laughs> i just got this on blu-ray so i'm about to watch the extended international cut for the first time I've Ooh, only ever see. seen the theatrical American version. I see Vinegar Syndrome just made a 4K and Blu-ray restoration of it. Yes, that's... Oh, they made a 4K one. Oh, great. I just got the Blu-ray, so I don't have the 4K. Believe me, wow, it doesn't yeah. need a 4K restoration. <laughs> like, some of this print is torn to shit. You know, don't... don't. You're not expecting the marker quality. This is like, crack a couple beers, have a couple... Well, don't have a couple friends over. Watch it over a stream <laughs> with a bunch of people on uh, Discord or something. And yeah, this one is just like a crazy oddity. 
Wow, that's awesome. And but Brian, way, I've like, seriously, but no joke, like I've watched it like three times, like over the past year, like <laughs> since this time last year, I've seen it like three times. Mike, did you know that there's also a laser disc version of this film? If, you, if you're hunting that out, oh, I am not. I'm no longer a collector. I've I have purged that part of my personality. Luckily, have you you had Laserdisc? No, no, no. I I've never had a Laserdisc oh. player, and I've never wanted to collect Laserdisc. But when I used to work at this mail order record store, and my boss had every single Laserdisc ever made, and we had like two customers that would buy from us like all the time. So I was like, why the hell are you still buying a Laserdisc? He's like, these two guys buy every fucking thing, man. I was like, all right, I'm not going to like argue with you. If I had known at the time, I would have picked up like one or two, you know, like Nick Cage ones or something. <laughs> oh man, that would have been cool. <laughs> well, Mike, of course, this was a pleasure. Um, I'm you know, so glad I could talk about this film with someone. And I'm happy that you didn't hate it. I'm happy that I didn't hate it. And I'm glad we could find some good in it. And again, yay, Carol Kane. Yeah, and Brian, for once I wasn't like ahead of the game on you for a horror film either. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I, like, we, I could come over here and talk horror. You can come over to my place and talk horror and stuff. And uh, you've exposed me to something I've never seen before. So thank you for that. Well, happy to do it. Happy to do it. So, Mike, you, you've referred to Over There, but I've mentioned... Uh, your show as well but you got a bunch of shows so why don't you tell the slumberers once again where else they can find you absolutely so cageclub.me i think we have a hosts section where you could click on each host and then see all the shows they're on but i mean joey and i have you know it's been about five years now we're coming up on since we started cage club uh currently we are in the midst of tom tom club where we're doing hanks for the memories and we j- I'm not exactly sure when this is going to drop, but, uh, you know, we're, we've just passed Cloud Atlas recording and we're coming up on, you know, more, much more modern Hanks type stuff. So that's good. Um, let's see. Third Time's a Charm is my show. There's a rumor that this is the last season, but I might pull a Jordan Belfort and say, fuck it. <laughs> we're going to just keep it going. But, you know, we'll see when the time comes, but, um, it's been a fun fun year over there so far. I have a really fun Star Trek 3 The Search for Spock episode up last month that I'm really proud of, that a lot of guests on that. Uh, Brian is my unofficial co-host on that show, so you could always catch him on there. We just recorded a fun episode, Meatballs 3, with Brian and Christian Larson, a guest that he has had on the high school slumber party before we yeah and that's uh, a, that was a fun episode to record that's for sure maybe not the most fun movie but a fun episode to talk about yeah that's a crazy bad movie but we had a good conversation about it i think and so catch that august 3rd and every third of every month there's a new episode and sometimes i drop mid-month episodes but uh, those are few and far between but always uh, keep an ear out for those as well so everything else cageclub.me yes and we have uh well you said you might have a mid-month featuring me and your heart oh, consultant Dan- oh Dan okay Cologne. that's right yeah so uh recent guest of your show dan cologne and my horror consultant at third times a charm and brian and i we recorded an episode early in quarantine of day of the dead so i'm trying to get that out um i've been pretty good with editing so far so i think that's going to happen uh yeah so yeah, otherwise and, uh, uh, that'll be out as soon as possible <laughs> and that episode was good because that episode A, uh, you know, that's when I asked Dan Cologne to be on High School Slumber Party, and we did the, our great Battle Royale episode, and that's when he told me about the whole the Teenage Hell 
book, the book with all the cool B-level teen movies. So, yeah, if I had known that more, if I had known that at the time that it would become such like a um, talked about episode that hasn't aired <laughs> yet, I'd have tried to get it out earlier. But it's you know, teased. It's, teased. it's been very teased, and it's just I sort of got a backlog when quarantine started, and I wasn't sure what was coming out when. Not because, a bad you know, thing. Not it's, a bad thing. It's just me over there. I don't have the organization skills of Joey by my side, so it's very haphazard. <laughs> Third time's a charm. Oh yeah, but you know I can't wait for that episode because that movie. Honestly, like if you if you do get to release it around when this episode comes out in the summer, that feels appropriate because that film like takes place in Florida. It's warm. It's you know there's a disease out there, so <laughs> it's still happening. It, just, it might come. It's still true. happening. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so maybe by the time it's released, it'll actually Florida will actually look like it does in that film. It'll be a documentary at that point. <laughs> Hope not, but you never know. <laughs> Fingies crossed. Yes. <laughs> Well, Mike, thanks so much again, and we'll be hearing from you soon, that's for sure. And if not, I'm sure I'll be on your show, which you've said, and we'll, we'll be on each other's shows a lot and, you know, for the rest of the year, I'm sure. Well, thank you as always, Brian. It's always a blast. Oh, hey, you're back. Good job. How long were you there for, like, let's see, like an hour and a half? Here you go, $30. I'll take a small cut off the top and... We should be good, right? All right, all right. I'll let you swim in the pool now. You're doing good so far. I'm loving your attitude, your enthusiasm, and the fact that you're still here. Bravo. Another babysitting assignment accomplished. And I hope you enjoyed that one. Big thank you to guest Mike Manzi. He's pretty much a regular here. And look, you'll hear from him again this summer, I'm sure. In fact, I know it. I can look at the schedule now. You'll hear from him again. He's awesome. Big thank you to Mike Manzi. Couple things before I give you this Friday's assignment as we are still bi-weekly on High School Slumber Party. First, I'd like to apologize for the slightly late delivery of this episode. 99.9% of you out there didn't even notice, but usually the episode comes out at midnight I apologize, I've been feeling a bit under the weather, so I was a little delayed this weekend in getting it out to you for Monday. But if you live in my region, if you live in the East Coast, if you live in New York, by the time you woke up, the episode was there for your commute, or probably not commute these days, who knows. And if you're from the rest of the world, I apologize for being later than usual. But most of you, like I said, are not going to really realize. And when I said midnight, I mean midnight East Coast America time. So just for reference going forward. However, listen whenever. It's always there. It's going to exist forever as long as I don't know, as long as podcasts exist. I'm not sure how long these things exist for. As long as the server exists, will they survive the singularity? Who knows? But again, listen forever. I just want to apologize for that. Oh, and I don't want to freak anyone out. I do not have COVID. I tested negative. This is something else. Apologies for temporarily freaking somebody out. By the way, let's not pretend COVID doesn't exist anymore. It's a really, really real thing, especially in this country, the United States. Not so much in New York, though we are still being safe. I'm wearing my mask 
everyone should wear their mask. But New York was the epicenter for a while. Now, not so much. Other parts of the country are really, really suffering right now. My heart goes out to everyone there. And I haven't said it in a while, and shame on me, but shout out to our healthcare heroes. They're doing so much right now. They're continuing to do so much right now around the country and around the world. So shout out there. I guess in more happy news, yesterday was Clueless, the film Clueless, 25th birthday, 25 years since that film came out. Wow, that makes me feel old, but awesome, congratulations, arguably the best high school film of all time, it's definitely up there, a lot of people think that, a lot of people say it's 10 Things I Hate About You, a lot of people say it's The Breakfast Club or Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but Clueless is always on people's lists, and I want to just congratulate Clueless for 25 years of glory, I guess. <laughs> and hey, smart asses out there like Joey Lewandowski and other people, I will cover Clueless. It is on the schedule. I'm not telling you when because we're going to gear up for a good episode, but Clueless is an awesome film. I can't wait for it just because I haven't covered it doesn't mean I don't like it. I love Clueless. We'll get to it. But the more you keep nagging me about it, the more I'm going to push it off. Okay? You got that? Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> happy 25th, Clueless. So Friday's film is not Clueless. Sorry, it might be something that's the opposite of Clueless to some people. It's Bratz, the movie. This summer, four inseparable friends are about to discover oh, high school. I'm Meredith, student body president. There are 48 distinct cliques. The goss, the skaters, the nerds, the disco dorks, football jocks, the loners. Leave me alone. I have the seating charts right here. I think we'd rather sit together. But the lunch courtyard isn't organized that way. Don't worry. We'll figure something out. Hey, what are we going to do about them? Nothing. My system is flawless. Hey, Jane, come here. Hey, Sasha, come sit with us. Look, girl, come check this out. We have no problems at all. Achieved complete and total control over the entire school. Chloe! I'm so sorry. You stupid cheerleader! You did not just say that. What happened to us? It's the clicks. We're all in them. What do we do? We be ourselves, just like we used to be. BFFs! <laughs> no. If we let Meredith scare us, she's gonna make our lives miserable. We gotta stand up for ourselves. Those freaks! I'm throwing a super sweet 16 party. If you don't belong to a group, you really can't come to my party. The only way to take back the school... They had better watch their backs. You are so devious. Thank you. I won the talent show three times. You're the only one that can break her straight. You have a serious gift. Go for it. Okay, fine. Just to rule the talent contest. Show some gratitude. And our guest is a huge fan of this movie, believe it or not. And he's going to tell us why we should not all collectively shit on Bratz the movie, but why we should all appreciate 
Bratz the movie. And that's Austin Wolf Southern. I'm so excited for this episode, guys. You're going to love it. I don't know if you're going to love the movie Bratz, but definitely try to watch it because his takes are great. He's a great guest. You're going to love at least listening to him and listening to all he has to say about this glorious, glorious film. (sighs) You can tell from my voice that I'm pretty exhausted. I've been doing laps in my pool. I've had a couple margaritas in me. I gotta crawl into my sleeping bag and hit the hay. I suggest you guys do the same. So I'll leave you with just something off the score from When a Stranger Calls. And yeah, next time your phone rings, I think you're going to be afraid. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. And remember, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. Later, dudes. It's over. Go home. Go.